Today is the 9th of August, 2014, and this is episode 134. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, highly experimental, and we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm joined by Andreas M. Antonopoulos, one of the other hosts of the show. Hello. And today we also have a special guest, Jeffrey Tucker, one of my favorite economists and uh, a spirited Austrian. Jeffrey, how are you? Everything's really great. I'm so happy to be here. It's really great uh, that we're able to meet up. I'm kind of on the road a little bit doing this and that. Um, I just got back from a nice Bitcoin meetup in Washington, D.C. last night. So you are in Washington right now. What are you in Washington for? I came in to do a series of seminars for uh, first the Charles Koch Institute and then uh, a nice interview on Reason TV. And now I'm headed to give a big, big lecture to the, the, the National Convention of the Young Americans for Liberty. Which is, a, which is a kind of a, a political organization, but when you ask me to speak, you're not going to get you know, too much about politics. You're going to get a lot about crypto anarchy. So we have a lot of listener questions. Since we've uh, booted up the forums, I've been posting little, hey, why don't you, you know, we're going to be talking to these people. Do you have any questions? So the first one that we have comes from uh, listener Strip, and he says, is it necessary for Bitcoin to be a symbol of some kind of idea? Is, is the symbolism important? Is the idea important or is it the tech? So this is a, a very interesting question because lots of people have different views about this. And even in Bitcoin meetups, you find some people who are, have, have a very conventional kind of understanding of Bitcoin as a superior payment network. Um, they see it as a kind of an improvement over PayPal. And, and then you meet other people that have have uh, really uh, sort of come out of the uh, cyberpunk, you know, sort of anarchist world and, and see it as a, as, a, as a tool for liberating the world from, from nation states, you know, these, these, and these are very different views, right? My, my own opinion about it is that it's both things and it's all things and it, it, people should just hold whatever views they want to about it. The beautiful thing about Bitcoin is that it's not dependent upon our opinions of it. Uh, nobody is in charge of Bitcoin, so I don't think it's necessary that we we have a particular ideology, you know, going into sort of our Bitcoin promotion or, or ideas, and we can all interpret it and understand it in a different way. It's it's really if you think about it, it's it's, it's almost like um, maybe electricity or internal combustion or something like that. These are gigantic technological improvements that have sort of enter into civilization. Many people have different ideas about how the technology is going to be used. And that's good and that's fine. But, you know, the tech is going to take its own direction regardless of what we think about it. I, I love the the idea that it is both because I think the technology itself is most certainly neutral. It's a technology that uh, can be used for a variety of purposes. But at its core, it encompasses certain principles, uh, principles of transparency, principles of openness, peer-to-peer use that is decentralized and egalitarian. And here's the trick. A neutral Mm. technology is not neutral if you put it in a world that is horrifically biased and skewed or 
as George Orwell said, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a, is a revolutionary act. So in a time of universal financial deceit, a transparent, open, and egalitarian financial network is a revolutionary technology. It is political, not because it is inherently political, but because it is put into a context of deceit. The act of creating equal access finance with transparency in our world, that is revolutionary. Yeah, this is, I think, a, a wonderful way to put it. I, so often, Andreas, when you speak, I, I, I always feel like I'm, I'm sort of 1.0 and you're 2.0. <laughs> so I completely agree with what you just said. I also love how Bitcoin sort of embodies all the coolest technologies of our time. What I'm about to speak on at the YAL is is about all the beautiful technologies that that are driving the the world forward. You know, from cryptography, open source programming, and and distributed networks and P2P relationships. These are changing the world. I'm not sure that people are entirely aware of this, especially these sort of highly politicized young activists. You know, the ground is shifting beneath our feet, and and Bitcoin represents, I think, the most developed embodiment of all the coolest technologies that we've seen emerge over the last five, 10 years. I'll give you another example of a technology that is inherently neutral, but which when introduced into a society that was hopelessly biased, it caused a revolution. And that's the telescope. Galileo put two pieces of ground glass on the ends of a tube and peered up into the heavens. And what he saw was not heavens. What he saw was spherical objects in elliptical orbits rotating around the sun. And that was simple truth. It was completely neutral. It was just reality sitting out there. But you drop that into the middle of 16th century Catholic Church indoctrination of an and that is a, a nuclear weapon of, of mass enlightenment that destroys all of these preconceived notions of a firmament, a heaven above, a material world below, helio, uh, you know, a geocentricity instead of heliocentricity. That is an enormously revolutionary act, and it simply involves opening your eyes and looking up and seeing something that directly contradicts 800 years of dogma and indoctrination. Does that make the telescope a revolutionary technology? Does that make looking at reality square in the face a revolutionary act? No, it's completely neutral. It just is. But it's disruptive. It's I mean, it's very disruptive. It ended whole nation states. It destroyed kingdoms. It brought down royal families. It upended the world. It's led to people nailing proclamations on doors and, uh, you know, taking off in ships and colonizing a new, a new continent with completely different ideas. It led to the French Revolution. It led to a victory of democracy over the, the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. It led to the end of the Holy Roman Empire, and it was just two pieces of glass on a, on a tube. You know, it, again, it's, it's not the technology itself, it's the context within which it, it appears. Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, it's really, really interesting, his description of a kind of a prevailing orthodoxy and a paradigm that comes to be overthrown 
in the course of development of science in which there's too many anomalies that appear that are not explained by the prevailing paradigm and then the paradigm collapses and we enter into a pre-paradigmatic state where there's a lot of argument about what we're going to believe now about the future and then a new paradigm emerges. And as I was reading, I couldn't help but think that that applies also to, to social and political systems also, not just scientific paradigms. And I really feel like we're living through one of these right now. Andreas, you mentioned the, the underlying context here of a, a sort of equipotency world in which peer-to-peer -peer relationships are the dominant thing. And I really see that as the, the emerging new paradigm. And the failing paradigm that's ending is, is one of hierarchies and third-party trust relationships, whether it be large banks, uh, corporations, or, or nation states, actually. You know, the, the problem is that these changes are obviously massively disrupted because there are a very large number of people and very powerful institutions invested in retaining the status quo, no matter how wrong it is, no matter how perverted it is, no matter how much pain and suffering it introduces into the world, it's very profitable for some. And, you know, as another saying goes, if your paycheck depends on you not seeing the truth, you won't see the truth. People get really embedded into the current paradigms and to orthodoxies, and this is what people don't understand really. I mean, this is what Thomas Kuhn's book is an attack on, is the Whig, Whig theory of history, that there's a kind of a smooth evolution of marginal improvements that, that go from thing to thing to thing. What he said is that actually we, we sort of hurl from one paradigm to another. And yeah. there, there are always establishments that exist raised up around certain belief systems and people just born into a certain structure and they absorb that into their belief system and they hang on to that for as long as possible until it becomes essentially impossible to do otherwise. This is what I think essentially was going to happen with, with Bitcoin. We all encounter resistance to it, right? I mean, there's, we're surrounded by people who are resistant. We see, you know, sort of a gradual enlightenment uh, take place. I noticed in the last month, for example, I've, I've personally encountered two people who were radical, radical Bitcoin critics a year ago, who've completely changed their minds in light of just experience. And uh, that would be Peter Schiff and Jim Rogers, uh, mm -hmm. two kind of uh, intellectual investors uh, that I really respect who used to laugh at me for my views on, on the subject who have now come around completely and uh, admitted that they were completely wrong and are looking forward to a beautiful Bitcoin future. Well, some of the strongest advocates in Bitcoin were originally skeptics, and it's in the nature of a skeptic, a, an honest skeptic, to ask hard questions. So when you when you encounter someone who, as soon as you introduce Bitcoin to you, doesn't just dismiss it, but dismisses it by asking really hard questions, and then you notice they're eagerly listening to your answers. They present you with their objections and they are hoping that you will be able to overcome those objections, to give them rational arguments to, to rethink their position. And an honest skeptic will give you arguments, will let you demolish them, and then will make that change, absorb the new data and become an advocate. Some of the strongest advocates I think start like that. And then there's a completely different category of person who is a skeptic but uh, does not want to assimilate any new information that would violate that thinking. They don't ask questions. They have preconceived ideas about what is true and what isn't and, and any attempt to 
tell them about Bitcoin is dismissed. That's how you know the difference between an honest skeptic and a, and a dishonest skeptic, I guess. But, you know, I don't think it's uh, surprising that people like Peter Schiff made that change because that's where our strongest advocates will come from. Can I tell you how it happened? It's actually very funny. So I'm, I'm bumping into Peter Schiff and I've been arguing with the guy for like a year and a half or, or really even two years about Bitcoin because even before I became an advocate, I was not a not a critic right he, he was one of these critics that, that would give like you know 65 reasons why bitcoin is a terrible idea right uh, one of these kind of guys then i bumped into him in las vegas at freedom fest and he, and he just like practically grabbed me by the lapels and said i have the most amazing story to tell you he said my, my company started accepting bitcoin because i i figured well if i can get it converted to dollars right away I don't care. I mean, people could pay me in bananas. You know, if it's converted to dollars, that didn't matter to me. So he enabled a widget on his uh, website that allowed uh, his clients to pay in Bitcoin. And he said to me, he said, you know, you can't believe it. And uh, I usually get international transfers in for for some of their product. They have to wait four or five days for a wire transfer or pay huge transaction fees with PayPal. Your credit cards are ridiculously, ridiculously expensive and always involve some fraud issues. He said, but Bitcoin, he said, do you know that I can process these transactions even before the client gets off the phone and I pay virtually zero transactions? And he's, and he's telling me this, you know, with wide eyes <laughs> as if he's telling me news, you know. I said, really, Peter? Is that right? He said, yeah, I'm telling you, that's what's right. And I said, well, okay, I'm glad to hear this. <laughs> It's the experience, I think. That's the experience the really is it. Yeah, that, that really is it. I think that we've all started as skeptics. You know, I mean, I certainly was looking at Bitcoin for a good year before I really felt like, you know, it was something that I might put some money into. And that was seeing it crash and come back a couple of times. It just seems like everybody has their own comfort threshold. Right. And uh, as we expand adoption, we're reaching the comfort threshold of more and more people. They, they see the first crash, the second crash, the third crash, the fourth crash, the fifth crash. And it's still not dead, which is, you know, kind of remarkable. Uh, the number of obituaries that have been written for Bitcoin is quite staggering. I thought it was pretty remarkable. I'm sitting here so thrilled. Here it is. I guess we're approaching, you know, sort of August 2014. I started writing about this subject, I guess it was February 2013. And I didn't expect what would happen, but I, I wrote about five or ten articles just right away as soon as I kind of started engaging Bitcoin, the Bitcoin economic structures and seeing what they're about. And then in a funny way, the ceiling fell in on me. Uh, all my old colleagues and friends started coming out of the woodwork uh, to, to say I'd, I was not of sound mind, that I'd forgotten all the lessons I, I previously knew, that, that I, I'd sort of lost it, you know, and I, I was severely attacked and criticized and it shocked me really you know i have to admit to you it's been delightful uh over the last year and a half to see how all these people have sort of shut up you know I, mean? <laughs> I hate to feel that sense of schadenfreude but I, I just do it's nice that there's more support now but there still is certainly you know we're, we still haven't hit that one percent yet yeah jeffrey you said something that got my attention which is people telling you, have you forgotten all the lessons? Have you forgotten all the things you know? And that's really the primary criticism of an established paradigm. You know, the lessons and the things you know, the conventional wisdom that's being drummed into your head, especially if you study the subject as an insider, as an academic in the space, or as a professional in the space, and you become skilled and expert in the space, that means you've reached the apotheosis of indoctrination. You've absorbed all of the dogma, 
and become adept at teaching it to others. And so the, the ironic thing is that the people who are able to escape the paradigm first are the ones who have never been schooled in it, right? If you yeah. come at it and say, I don't know anything about money, so this Bitcoin thing looks good. You've got a That's right. better chance of learning something. But if you, if you think you already know everything there is to know about money, you know, you have that conventional wisdom in your head. It's almost impossible to escape that paradigm. It invades your life in every way. It informs your academic success. You've written papers about it. You've taught thousands of others the same thing and reinforced it in your own mind. You've expanded your view within that narrow framework. You've explored its edges. You've taken it from kind of a vague description to hard lines and sharp edges. And then and stepping outside of that is almost impossible. So you, you see that sometimes the person who comes along and throws all of that in disarray is someone who's outside the field. They have to be because they've avoided the indoctrination. It's the patent clerk at the Austrian patent office that says, Newtonian physics? I don't think so. It's the tinkerer who has no formal training in electronics, who, you know, understands a new perspective. And it's the half programmer, uh, half physicist systems thinker, Satoshi Nakamoto, who is obviously not an economist, who comes along and says, well, how about we do it this way? I just love what you just said. And I, I hope that, I mean, somebody should just transcribe uh, those few paragraphs you just said, because that's really brilliant. I know in my case, I had a serious problem that everything I thought I knew argued against the, the legitimacy of coin. And it became a serious problem for me mentally because I couldn't make sense of it in light of my theories, right? But at some point I decided, look, what, I'm, what am I going to trust? What I actually see out the window or the theories that are in this book, 100-year-old book that I've got whirling around in my head. And I finally had to, to trust reality over theory and hope that at some point they could re-merge together in, in a way that makes rational sense to me. But there was a whole long period in there which I couldn't actually bring the two together. But nonetheless, Bitcoin is happening, you know? so. Uh, I had to take almost a kind of a leap, you know, out of my prevailing orthodoxies in order to, to embrace Bitcoin. Then, gradually, over the course that it took about 12 months, I, I began to put it all back together again. And now Bitcoin makes sense to me in light of what I previously understood, but it, with some tweaks, you know. So, yeah, there, there's a, it's a certain amount of intellectual humility that's required to leave one paradigm and enter another. When you said you had to make an intellectual leap, it brought to mind another beautiful example of paradigm shifting and just stepping completely outside the the accepted norms and doing something so obviously weird and different that it shocks everyone and it forces them to reconsider reality because it simply works. And that's the story of Dick Fosbury. And Dick Richards Fosbury, Dick Fosbury, is the athlete who person to do the high jump with a backwards flip. And no one had ever done it that way. Everybody would run up to the pole and kind of scissor their legs over it. And that was the established way of doing it for decades, possibly even, you know, hundreds of years, who knows. And he ran up and jumped backwards. And at first, the reaction 
was that the judges tried to figure out if this was actually allowed. Can you do this? I mean, is this part of the rules? Because immediately set the world record, right? By doing this weird backwards flip. And, you know, they said, well, the pole's still sitting there. It didn't fall off. Completely violated the existing paradigm. Completely crazy and weird looking. And of course, the next year's Olympics, everybody was doing it. That's a great story. LTB Coin is the official community rewards program of the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. You can earn LTBC for performing any number of things you probably already do. If you listen to shows like Let's Talk Bitcoin, listen up for the magic word. When you hear it, visit letstalkbitcoin.com, log into your free account, and enter the magic words to claim your share of the listener rewards. And now it's time for the LTB News Flash, brought to you by CryptoKit, the easiest, fastest Bitcoin wallet that installs right into your browser, so it's always there when you need it. Here are the headlines for August 9th, 2014. Lake Tahoe property sells for 1.6 million Bitcoin. Bitcoin momentum growing in emerging markets. Hacker swipes $83,000 from Bitcoin mining pool. The Bitcoin derivative boom can be a mark of a cryptocurrency's coming of age. Hooboy bets big on multisig with quick wallet acquisition. Bitcoin Foundation seeks more time to address virtual currency rules. Hungary's 220 volt now accepts Bitcoin for laptops, tablets, TVs, and more. Check it out at CryptoKit.com. K-R-Y-P-T-O-K-I-T.com. Today's first sponsor with a high watermark of 81,250 LTBC is Storage.io. That's S-T-O-R-J dot I-O. Here's what they have to say about the project. Imagine if the cloud wasn't up here, but down here with us. That's Storage. Storage is a cloud shared by the community. It's potentially the largest, cheapest, and most secure cloud available. What you share is what you get. You could even be paid by renting your extra space. But how is it more secure? Each file is shredded, encrypted, and spread across the network until you're ready to use it again. And you can be sure the files are safe because the keys are in your pocket, not a company's. Only you have access to your stuff. Because the network is shared, you don't have to worry about slow download speeds coming from one place. We're all helping to make the system blazing fast. And if you have some extra space lying around, you'll get paid by users who need more than they can share. It's like renting out your empty hard drives. A cloud with security, no downtime, and speed at a fraction of the cost. They're currently running a crowd sale. August 16th is the last chance to get involved. If you'd like to learn more, visit storj.io. It's time for the magic word. Today's magic word for episode 134 is liberty. That's liberty. L-I-B-E-R-T-Y. Liberty. You've got until the 13th of August to visit letstalkbitcoin.com and enter the magic word for your share of the LTBC audience rewards. So today's second sponsor is a little bit different. With 62,000 LTBC, community member C. Mason asked that we use his time to talk a little about the situation in Gaza. His perspective is this. Between 1947 and 49, seven to 800,000 non-Jews were expelled from their family lands in Israel, and hundreds of villages were destroyed. Those people were kept under occupation without rights or estate for 47 years. 
Muslims, Christians, and others within Israel can't rent or purchase land in about 80% of the country and are basically second-class citizens by law, while on the other hand, any Jewish person born anywhere in the world may gain Israeli citizenship and take the land of a non-Jew. And with that, I pissed off about half our audience. Just kidding. Um, thanks to C. Mason for his perspective, my mind is very one-track. I tend to focus on things I can positively impact, and mostly this just seems like there's no winning scenario. It's not about the people, it's about the politics of control, which is probably a whole show unto itself. And certainly just because one side of the conflict has terrible stories doesn't mean that that's not just as true on the other. And that's the thing, I guess. It's just not about you or I at all. In the Middle East, just like everywhere else, our leaders make bad decisions because it's the best, as they see it, of the available options. Is it good for anybody, really? No, but that's not the world that we live in. Yet. So that's it. Back to the show. So Andreas, a little bit earlier you mentioned patent clerk, Newtonian physics. Intellectual property really has been, for hundreds of years now, kind of a core part of how people both monetize and protect. And it's been interesting watching disruptive technologies, specifically cryptocurrency, which isn't really governed by patents or can't really be controlled by patents. And on the other hand, you've got things like 3D printing that made a lot of progress in just a couple of years, but it was only because some 20-year-old patents had expired, and now these parts were able to be made by just anybody who wanted to make them, as opposed to the one manufacturing conglomerate that, that had the legal right to be able to do it before that point. So I'm curious, you know, where do you think intellectual property controls can fit within a Bitcoin framework, and what impact would it have had if the situation had been different in the cryptocurrency space? So my own feeling on intellectual property is that it's, it's basically an, an artificial thing that can only exist in an age of the nation state and uh, that's governed by the physical world and the capacity of monopolistic elites to control the world through compulsion and coercion. And that's fundamentally at odds with the, which the digital age is all about about malleability, reproducibility, uh, immortality, and you know distributed networks. And th- these are just the idea of some some elites, you know, g- gathering together to allocate who owns what in in the realm of ideas incompatible with this. And basically, I've I've done a lot of work on the history of intellectual property, the the ideological structures surrounding it. It wasn't really until after the the beginning of the 21st century that we saw hardcore, really serious attacks on the idea of IP. Now, it's because the digital networks really just kind of broke the system down. Uh, we saw some opposition to IP even as early as you know the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, but nothing really substantial and serious until the digital age. Basically, I think the system is broken down and and is it isn't going to last. And it's very interesting to me too to see how large corporations are starting to realize this and stop putting so much energy and time into enforcing their their patents and their copyrights and starting to use the new networks of of you know open source cooperation and and the sharing economy to their advantage here here that's a great comment Jeffrey intellectual property is an artificial construct for monopolizing ideas and creating cartels around abstract concepts the basic problem is that no one really has an original thought that they conceived uh, completely by themselves without anybody else being involved you know, innovation is simply extending the culture of four and a half million years one millimeter forward by combining all of the existing inputs 
and producing something slightly different, something that probably a few thousand other people have already done somewhere else. And the idea that you can take that and create a monopoly around it is, while originally envisioned as a way to reward creators, has ended up creating these islands of stagnant creativity and isolation by removing things from the culture. The age-old compact, if you like, the social compact that's, that's even encoded in the in U.S. Constitution, which is that Congress can secure you know, rights for creators in order to promote the arts and sciences. This idea that these patents and copyrights are of limited time so that you take from the cultural zeitgeist, you enhance it or advance it a tiny bit, you get a short-term reward, and then you give it back to the public domain so that others can build upon it. And that compact then got perverted, starting with the Disney company, who as soon as they saw their Mickey copyright running out, went to Congress and got it extended 73 times uh, until copyright essentially became infinite instead of limited times. Quite happy to take the Brothers Grimm and every other cultural story um, appropriated for their own needs and then give nothing back to the popular culture, right? Take all of the stories of our ancestors, turn them into uh, copyright material, and then give nothing back by perverting the copyright law. And we've seen this happen across the, across the board in intellectual property. Well, open source breaks that cycle and it says it recognizes that collaboration and creation moves faster and innovation with collaboration moves faster. And if you give back to the community, the community will give back to you again and again. And it creates this feedback loop of accelerating innovation, whether it's Linux or Wikipedia or a thousand other things that have come from it, especially now with the introduction of the Creative Commons law and licenses. Those are amazing things, and what they're showing is that there's a much better way to do it. I heard something last night that really intrigued me, because I've tried to understand like the best way to describe open source projects and what they mean. But at the Bitcoin meetup last night, somebody said that the great thing about open source technology is that it, it sort of takes away the obligation we all feel to sort of constantly reinvent things, to constantly re recreate on our own from scratch. Uh, you know, all things, always reinventing the wheel in a world of intellectual property, as you say, it requires absolute originality. But open source programming and open source everything allows us to sort of draw from the energies of others and take what's already been done and sort of build on top of them. So you have this sort of accumulating uh, capital that, that grows over time. I was trying to think of the right analogy. It's like as if as if you had a, a cake that is just you know, constantly so it's sort of one cake baked by the whole world that's that's constantly getting ever better and ever more delicious and the more people eat it, there's ever more cake for ever more people. Rather than just sort of individual cakes by individuals constantly throughout history, you have sort of one big cake that everybody's constantly making better and testing and bringing their own ideas to it. I, I thought that was a really nice way to think about it. Yeah, the, the core fallacy at the, at the heart of the concept of intellectual property is the word property, because one of the absolute characteristics of property is that if you have property and I take that property, you no longer have that property. It is by definition singular, unique, unitary, and not shareable. But if you have an idea and I copy that idea, we both have that idea. And if I give it to 10 more people, 
all 12 of us now have that idea and we can all build on it. And you lost nothing from the fact that I have the idea. It's not property. And it's not property because it's not tangible. It's not destroyable. It's infinitely copyable. If you have invented something and I copy that, then really what we're doing is doubling the rate of invention because at the end of the day, you didn't really invent something. You just expanded on thousands of years of culture and your addition is standing on the shoulders of giants hasn't really raised the bar that much. The, the whole idea of property in the first place, as you say, comes about because of the existence of scarcity. I mean, it's a social construct we invented to stop conflicts, to deal with the problem of rivalrous control over, over, over the physical world. You know, once you, once you migrate to the digital world and you get simultaneous consumption of all things with no depreciation of the, of the original object, your know, property is no longer necessary. It becomes just an absurdity. You know, it's important to remember that in, in history, people have had mistaken views of property over all sorts of things. For example, in the 18th century and, and up until uh, the 19th, early part of the 19th century, people widely thought that uh, slaves were legitimate forms of property. In fact, there's a Fifth Amendment of the Constitution was put in there to protect those property rights over other people, you know, and and now we recognize that was just a mistake. So in the 21st century, we're gradually realizing this is this is also a mistake to apply the term property to to the realm of ideas. But was it always a mistake? Because the arguments I hear both of you making basically revolve around now we have digital things, but that wasn't true even 30 or 40 years ago. So 200 years ago, when uh, intellectual property was getting started in this country in the in the United States, you know, I have it in my head that it actually might have served a purpose because the inventor you know was at the mercy of a manufacturing partner that might take years and might actually kick them out of the business because they don't control the the inventor doesn't control or have any claim to the very centralized and capital intensive means of production so Lincoln had a quote that I like um, he said patents added the fuel of interest to the fire of innovations and I wonder did they ever serve a purpose in your in your eyes Jeffrey I don't think, I don't know, I don't think so. And I think what we need to do is totally revise intellectual history. The origin of the steam engine was a similar kind of problem. I mean, there was a great innovation, then it got locked down by patents and nothing nothing happened of any value for another, you know, 10 or 20 years because everybody was sort of prohibited by law from adding to it. It was very interesting what happened with uh, even things like the cotton gin. You know, that who's that guy? Eli Whitney supposedly invented it, but he, he didn't invent it. He, he improved it slightly and then got a patent on it and went around spending the next 20 years cracking down, cracking skulls to prevent uh, innovation. He finally learned his lesson after he bankrupted himself, spending much money on patent lawsuits. It's the same thing with the stupid, with the Wright brothers. I mean, they came up with a pretty cool little innovation that gave them the title of, of being the first in flight, and then they spent the rest of their, their whole lives enforcing the patents. Meanwhile, all other countries in the world actually improved airline technology. By the time World War One came along, the U.S. had the worst airplanes in the world because we had the tightest patent controls. <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't think the patents have actually served, ever served any kind of uh, purpose in we really need to revise our intellectual history. Adam, you said something very interesting about how maybe intellectual property is not really relevant in digital age, but it might have had relevance before. But I, I really feel like we should have known that IP was, was not a good idea, even dating all the way back to the Gutenberg Bible. 
when the Gutenberg Bible came along, of course, there was no IP over the Psalms and the other texts that were being printed. But there was a confusion because people associated the ideas on the page with the physical property of the page itself. We didn't really couldn't really conceptualize the fact that these are really different products. I mean, the the, the ideas in the book are part of the non-scarce realm. The book itself is part of the scarce realm. So we have this kind of merging of these two things: one non-scarce and one scarce, and one beautiful thing called called a book. But it took us a long time to sort of realize that we're dealing always with two realms, one scarce and one non-scarce. And we just didn't know it so fully and completely until the last few years. So Bitcoin emerged as a very hobbyist sort of thing, right? It was very, very amateur, very just experimental. Let's see what we can accomplish. We're doing this because it's neat that we can do this. And I, I recently read a book um, called The Master Switch by Tim Wu. And in mm-hmm. that he uh, tells a bunch of different stories of information empires as they uh, succeed and then fail. And one of the stories that he tells is about AM radio and FM radio. And AM radio strikes me very similarly to, to how Bitcoin emerged. And FM radio seems like maybe after the recent discussion about these uh, rules that are being made in New York, maybe that's the situation that everything that comes after will, uh, will fall under. So I'm curious, do you know this story? I'm not aware about it. It's been a while since I read uh, Tim Wu's book, so maybe you can remind me while we explain it to our listeners. It's a fairly lengthy thing, but the idea is, in the early days, kid who wanted to set up a radio station could set up a radio station with one of these little crystal radio things, and it was a it was a hobbyist thing that people did because it was fun. You could set up a broadcast and you could listen to things, and this was this was very new at the time. Basically, it took like 40 years to develop, but by that point, it had developed to quite a successful industry, and there were a variety of monopolies, actually, because at the time, the only way that you could get from, you could get a station from somewhere non-locally would be to use AT&T's long-distance lines, and that actually was one of the reasons why FM radio was kind of suppressed, because FM radio came along and it essentially made it so ranges were such, and power requirements were such that before it was unfeasible with AM radio to do like rebroadcast stations where you, you know, broadcast from one hill and then it's rebroadcast from another hill. This, the range was too short and the power requirements were too great. But when FM radio came along, it essentially made it so that anybody who wanted to do this could very cheaply set up these networks of stations and rebroadcasters. And that was one of several reasons why the AM radio paradigm, which had actually invented the FM radio technology, had funded the research to do it, then sat on the technology. And so the FCC came along and said, in order to maintain the standard, you can use much less power than you could with an equivalent AM station so that it will only give you an AM equivalent broadcast distance. I'm rambling and doing a kind of terrible job with this, but it seems like sometimes, especially in the last hundred years, these are used as weapons to suppress technologies. Not sometimes, Adam. Every single time in every disruptive technology, the existing industries have used every weapon at their disposal uh, to fight for incumbency and to prevent disruption, which is, of course, a normal reaction, which then tells you what regulation does. Regulation starts off at least presumably or presented as uh, consumer protection, and it very quickly becomes a way to distinguish incumbents and to protect them from competition because they become adept at navigating the regulation, they co-op the regulators, and then as soon as disruption happens, they turn the regulation around and point it as a big weapon at the disruptors, and that has happened in every industry. 
that's happening today in every industry. In the end, they never succeed. That's what's amusing. I mean, history progresses in any case. It's just that the regulators can slow us down, but they can't ultimately stop it, which which makes it just a, just a vast waste. I feel this way about a lot of these Bitcoin regulations that are coming out. It's like, it's going to make the, the sector function less well. It's going to make it less competitive. It's going to be less focused on the consumer and more focused on compliance, you know. But in the end, 50 years from now, none of these regulations that they're trying to pass right now are going to have any relevance for whether and to what extent Bitcoin adoptions takes place. Bitcoin's going to take its own course eventually. It's just a matter of how many victims you want to create in the, in the meantime. That's what it's all about. Well, but for New York, for example, again, we're talking about proposed rules here, uh, just real briefly, that essentially say that you have the same compliance requirements if you do anything with Bitcoin and users that have some basis in New York as you would if basically you're, you're a, a minor bank. Reporting requirements are very, very stringent, and it basically makes it so that with the current way cryptocurrency is, it's kind of incompatible to be compliant and to not create an entirely new cryptocurrency. So I've been wondering about that. I mean, it's kind of easy to create a new cryptocurrency. So if New York wants to go along with this this type of, uh, of means, doesn't it make sense to actually either, maybe not them, maybe somebody else does it, but create a cryptocurrency that actually complies with all of these requirements that they want, that has the real name stuff attached, and that doesn't require you to jerry-rig it, rather than using Bitcoin, where, yeah, you can use it, but you're throwing out all the advantages that, that came with it, so why bother? I think that's mistaking uh, a bug for a feature for a bug. The mm. fact that Bitcoin is incompatible with these regulations, that's not a bug in Bitcoin. That's a feature. That's one of the best features in Bitcoin. <laughs> it's incompatible with these regulations because those regulations themselves express the existing paradigm, and that is exactly what Bitcoin is disrupting. But I'm going to call the you on this, Andreas, Bitcoin. because Bitcoin is neutral. So at the same time, you're kind of putting an ideology onto it that are saying that things. So so that's that's what I'm saying is no, no, Bitcoin has the ideology no, baked into it. Can you twist that ideology and create something else that's very similar but that doesn't have that exact thing? No, what I'm saying is that Bitcoin is neutral, but Bitcoin is neutral in a way that violates the tenets of a very not neutral regulatory system that assumes that the best way to achieve consumer protection is to have all of the personally identifiable information of consumers given to several agencies with lax controls uh, so they can lord over it and supposedly stop bad guys. And what that does is actually destroys consumer protection and privacy is consumer protection. The idea that by giving all your private information, you will be protected as a consumer is perverse. And the fact that Bitcoin does not conform to that idea because it is neutral, because it allows consumers to interact without having to go through this perverse activity of giving up all their personal information just to transact, that's not a bug in Bitcoin. That is the feature that makes sure that Bitcoin will not fit into these comfortable regulations and it won't fit into the comfortable regulations because the regulations themselves are perverse. The right. idea that consumer protection is uh, ensured by taking all the private information of consumers. And when consumers have a choice to choose how they want to be protected, they choose not to give out their personal information. But that, that is the point. But that, that's neutral. what they're doing. But I mean, like, I, yes, yes, in reality, yes, given the choice, but they don't have a choice. If this happens, then the only legal uses for Bitcoin will be this type of use where you are disclosing all of this information. So that's what I'm saying is that in the world that we live in, if this happens, 
Is it better to keep using Bitcoin and still disclose all that information because you're going to have to anyways if you're in New York and under the subject of all this nonsense? Or is it better to create something that kind of bakes it in? And, and more importantly, what will people who are not us and who are not in this for the ideology of it think? Thanks for listening to episode 134 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Jeffrey Tucker, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Denise Levine and Adam B. Levine. Music for today's show is provided by Jared Rubens, Gertie Beats, and General Fuzz. If you're a developer, you might be interested in our upcoming Coins for Commits program. As the platform goes open source in the coming weeks, we'd like as much help as possible, and you'll earn LTBC for your commits. If you have any questions, send an email to adam at letstalkbitcoin.com, and I'll help you find the right person to speak to.